Amen. If you've got a Bible with you, you want to open up to Luke chapter 19. We are finishing what has been a long section in the Gospel of Luke, and like the whole middle chunk of the book is given over to this travel travel sort of narrative. Jesus goes from Galilee, the area of Galilee in the north, he goes down to Jerusalem, and this passage today is the last passage before he finally enters into the city of Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, which we'll talk about next week. So end of a long section, Jesus is near Jerusalem. He's near the last week of his life. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 27 this morning in Luke chapter 19. When I was in high school and then all the way through college, all of the summers in in between those years, I lifeguarded at Clayview. And high school and college, that's uh, a chunk of life where you, you haven't really figured out what it is to sort of take pride in the work that you do and the place where you work. And so myself included, pretty much everybody that lifeguarded at Clayview, it was basically about doing just enough to not get fired um, and then move on to the next day. And so there would be four or five of us on at a time, and the same man was the manager of the pool for all of the summers that I was there. And he had a very kind of set way that he wanted us to do things. And there were a number of items that we were supposed to take care of basically continually while you were on. So if you weren't on the guard stand, you were supposed to be, you know, like straightening deck chairs, making sure the trash wasn't overflowing, keeping the deck clean. Somebody was supposed to sit at the gate where people came in so you could greet people at all times. Um, And every once in a while, you pretty much knew at some point during the day, Bob was going to show up. He was the manager. You didn't know when. Sometimes you would come in for like the closing evening shift and the daytime people would tell you, hey, Bob's already been here. And you're like, this is total freedom tonight. We don't have to touch those chairs. We'll just do the closing things and make sure it looks like it's supposed to look at the end of the night. Other times when you came for your shift, Bob hadn't been there yet. And he had a little tell, and that was usually on his way from his house to the pool or wherever he was coming from, he would call. And so there was a payphone right by the gate where people came in. If you were the person out there, the phone rang and it was Bob, you knew that as soon as you hung up, you ran onto the pool deck to let everybody else know Bob's coming, which meant the stuff that you were supposed to be doing for the last five or six hours, you did in five minutes because Bob was going to show up. But sometimes he would call from the parking lot. Like he had already shown up, he had parked his car and he was calling now and everything that you were supposed to be doing, he knew had not been done. There's probably something similar in your own mind to like that sort of, you know, the boss or the supervisor is coming and you've got some kind of image. It might be, you think, you know, when you were young or maybe with, you've got children this age now and you guys, uh, mom and dad go for a little while and you leave the kids at home and you say, hey, when you get home, I want your room to be clean. And we all know because we were that age once, when the garage door goes up, you just start shoving things into the closet or under the bed or whatever so that when mom and dad get into the house, it looks like you did the thing you were supposed to do. Keep that image in mind while we read this passage. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they were listening to this, He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas and told them, engage in business until I come back. 
But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put the money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to gather together. God, we know that if we are going to know you as you are, it means that we need to understand your word because it's in your word that you've revealed yourself to us. And so I pray this morning that you would give us clear understanding, help our hearts to be free from the distractions of life that sort of hound us as we come into here in the mornings. God, would we hear and understand your word with diligence and faith? God, would you help us to rightly discern who you are and what your will is? Would you, by your spirit, help us to cherish that and live by it with an earnestness, God, that you might be praised and honored in and through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This parable has a very close cousin. It's actually the cousin that we're most familiar with. The close cousin is in Matthew chapter 24. It's the parable of the talents. There's an individual who gives five talents to one person, two talents to another, one talent. That person comes back. It's incredibly similar, but different. And the differences are actually in the details here. And so if we're gonna understand this correctly, the context is crucial. So that's where we're gonna start. Then we're gonna see that the king in this parable is central, that the cross is clarifying for how it is that we understand this parable. And then once we get all the understanding right, there is a clear calling for us. But in something like this, if we get the context wrong, we'll get the understanding wrong. And if we get the understanding wrong, there's no hope for applying it correctly. And so we're going to start really big picture in terms of the context and then sort of drill our way down into some specificity here. And the biggest picture thing for us to know here is that in Jesus's listeners' minds, there was an actual historic event that closely mirrors what happens in this parable. It was about 30 years prior to this. Uh, Jesus would have been a very young child, but a man named Archelaus went to Rome in order to receive his father's kingdom. Now his father was Herod the Great. That's the Herod who in the gospel of Matthew, 
When Jesus is born, people are proclaiming that this baby is king and Herod has all of the infant boys slaughtered. That's Herod the Great. That's toward the end of his reign. And a few years later, Archelaus, his son, does what was traditional at this time and travels to Rome to see the emperor so that he can receive authority to be king in his father's place. Now, the Israelite people so detested Archelaus that 50 Jewish leaders actually follow him to Rome so that when he's about to receive the kingdom, they can plead with the emperor how much they dislike this man, don't let him be king. And what happened in the historical event is that Archelaus does not receive the kingdom. Instead, his brother does, Herod Antipas. That's why when you get to the end of Jesus's life and he's on trial and he's there with the Sanhedrin, he's sent to Pilate. Pilate sends him to a man named Herod, who's really excited to meet this Jesus because he's heard about Jesus and he wants to talk to him. And then Jesus basically doesn't answer his questions and Herod Antipas kicks him back over to Pilate. Two Herods in Jesus's life, dad, Herod the Great at the start and son, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas became king because the emperor said, I'll listen to these 50 Jewish individuals and I won't make Archelaus king. That real life event is running in the background for Jesus's listeners here. The other sort of big picture historical thing for us to keep in mind is what is a mina worth exactly? In the parable of the talents, a talent is a huge sum of money, like $400,000 or so. So in the parable, when the landowner gives some servant, gives a servant five minas. That's like $2 million in today's money, a huge sum. A mina is significantly less. It would have been like a hundred days worth of a day laborer's wages. So like three months worth of salary, still a decent amount, but nowhere near as much as a talent. The other difference in these two parables is that 10 individuals come to this nobleman and he gives each one one mina. So they all get the same amount. 100 days worth of a day laborer's wages. What's going on in Luke when Jesus gives this parable? Well, this conversation, as I mentioned, happens in the final stages of Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. In fact, Jericho where this takes place, is just like 17 miles from Jerusalem. So that's close enough in our context to be like a suburb. In Jesus's time, there would have been quite an expanse there. So it's a day or, two, uh, a day or two's walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so the crowd around him would have been growing this entire time. And throughout the gospel of Luke and Jesus's ministry, he wants listeners to understand that he's approaching Jerusalem. That's his final destination. He's been headed there since what we have as Luke chapter nine. And in the recent context here, both Luke and Jesus in their words at different times are trying to make it clear to us the end is at hand. Like the destination is at hand here for Jesus. So Luke 17 verse 11, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. Luke 18, 31. Then he took the 12 aside and told them, these are Jesus's words. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Luke 18, 35, as he approached Jericho. Luke 19, verse one. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Luke 19, 11, at the start of our passage today. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. 
Jesus wants this crowd to understand. Luke wants us as readers to understand that this long journey is coming to an end. Jesus stepped out of heaven so that he could ultimately step into Jerusalem. That moment is around the corner. He came off the throne in heaven that he might be put onto the cross in Jerusalem. That's right at hand. The disciples, they don't really get the implications of this despite the fact that Jesus has been hammering away at it. In Luke 17, he talked about his kingdom being already but not yet. It is here and it will come. And they totally didn't get it. It was muddy at best. In chapter 18, he talks about his death for the third time, betrayed into the hands of men, killed, raised on the third day. And at the end of that passage, we're told the disciples did not understand. The message was not clear to them. It was kept from them. Like what's about to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem is a very foggy notion for this crowd, but it's crystal clear for him. He knows exactly what awaits him there. And we're told as they were listening to this, what's the this? Well, it's the conversation that just took place between Jesus and Zacchaeus. A super important conversation where Zacchaeus demonstrates by the overflow of his heart that he has been saved. He says, I'll give half my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. Leviticus chapter six gives us the background on what a Jewish individual had to repay if they defrauded someone. They were supposed to make full restitution, so everything they took, plus one-fifth or 20% of that amount. Zacchaeus says, I'll give four times as much back to the people that I've taken from. And Jesus responds by saying, salvation has come to this house. Your heart displays what has taken place, like your actions display what's taken place in your heart. He too is a son of Abraham. And Jesus says, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. This big crowd, it's probably outside Zacchaeus's house, but we, we've kind of talked about houses at this time. There would have been like an open courtyard area in the middle where Zacchaeus is hosting Jesus and probably the disciples in this large crowd can see into that and hear this conversation. And it's in that moment that Jesus decides to deliver this parable. Why? What is this parable for? Well, verse 11 tells us. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of heaven was going to appear right away. Whatever it is that Jesus has to say in this parable, whatever it is that we are to take away from this parable is something about the king and the kingdom. He's trying to correct that within this large crowd. They think Jesus is gonna sweep into Jerusalem 17 miles away from Jericho because kings rule from Jerusalem. He's going to get there and install himself as king. And Jesus corrects that with this parable. So whatever it is that we take away, it has to fit inside of that or else we're taking Jesus's words and trying to do something with them that he did not intend. So with all of that in the background, historical, big picture Luke, nearby context in Luke, let's reread the parable. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas and told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him 
and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. The big picture from this parable I think the big picture that we're supposed to take away from this teaching from Jesus is that Jesus is a returning king of an advancing kingdom. Big picture, what's going on in the parable? Big picture, what's Jesus drawing from this actual historical event? The king goes away and then he comes back to install his kingdom. I think what we can anchor rock solid out of this, even though it's a challenging passage, is that Jesus is the returning king of an advancing kingdom. I think there are a few more things we can take away from the parable specifically. The focus in the parable is on a king and a kingdom. And so if you're a note taker, the next three points that we draw out are a lowercase k. I'm talking about the king in the parable. And that matters. We'll get to it as we go along. But the first one is this. The king will return to install his kingdom. That's why Archelaus went to Rome. That's what's happening in the parable. A nobleman goes away to receive his kingdom. He comes back as king and will install his rule and his reign. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that this kingdom he's been preaching about isn't going to come fully and finally when they stroll into Jerusalem in a day or two. Something's going to happen there, something very significant, but he's going to go away and at some point he will come back. That seems to be the clearest big picture takeaway that we can have from this parable. There's one challenge with all parables though, and that's to not overstretch them, to try to take every little element and allegorize it into something. The rest of the gospel of Luke and the Bible makes it clear that Jesus, the son of God, he does not need to go away in order to receive his kingdom like an earthly king would have at that time. He's always been king. He's been king since eternity past. He's ruling and reigning as king right now, even while he's in the flesh. He's ruling and reigning as king right now today, and he will rule and reign as king forever. He did not need to be crucified and resurrect and ascend into heaven in order to become king. So while we can make the statement that Jesus is the king of an advancing kingdom, it's not because he ascended and became king. He has always been king. Thing we can take away number two. The king, lowercase k, we're still in the parable, is disproportionately generous to his faithful servants. The king in the parable gives 10 people one mina each, about three months worth of salary. 
We only get the recap of what happens with three of them. The other seven sort of disappear from the parable. They fade into the background. But one has created a 10 times profit. One has created a five times profit. And one hid the mina in a cloth and then returned it back to the king. The king then gives those first two individuals 10 cities and five cities to rule over respectively. Now let's just kind of put that into today's context. You get three months advance on whatever your salary is. A wealthy individual dumps that into your lap all at once and then he goes off to become governor of Missouri, let's say. Now when he comes back, he calls all of these people forward and you step up and you say, I took your three months worth of salary, 100 days, and I turned it into a thousand days worth of salary, close to three years worth. And this person who's just become governor says, wow, that is amazing. I'm going to give you Liberty, North Kansas City, Gladstone, Parkville, Riverside, Kearney, Excelsior, Mosby, Pleasant Valley, and Claycomo, and you can be mayor of all of them. And you're like, that's a massive job I'm not interested in. (laughs) But that's disproportionate generosity. Then your friend steps forward and says, I turned your 100 days worth of salary into 500 days worth of salary. So roughly a year and a half. And the governor says, wow, that is amazing. You can have Blue Springs, Independence, Lee Summit, Raytown, and Grandview. And you can be mayor of them all. And he's like, I don't know that I wanted that job either, but thank you. Like it's disproportionate generosity. Even three years worth of salary would not be worth those 10 cities to rule and reign over, especially at this time when you would just be drawing profit off of those places. He's disproportionately generous. The math doesn't come close to making sense. And that's what makes the next conversation, starting in verse 20, almost comical. The third person is brought forward. Says, I took your mina and I hid it in a cloth. Here it is. Well, why did you do that? Well, because I heard you were a harsh man, gathering what you did not deposit, reaping what you did not sow. Pause. What we just saw from this king, does that seem like a harsh man? No, he's disproportionately generous. And that's why the king responds and says, I'll condemn you by your words. You said I'm harsh, taking from what I did not deposit, reaping from what I did not sow. And if you really thought that, why would you not do the bare minimum and at least put my money in the bank so that I could get interest, you evil or wicked servant? I mean, he didn't even hide it well. Like at least the guy in the parable of the talents takes it and buries it in the ground where no one else would know where it is. This guy just like wrapped it up in a napkin and shoved it in his pocket and hoped for the best until the king came back. And this creates like the first challenging question in the parable. If we're not trying to stretch or over-allegorize, but if we're supposed to understand that God is like this king and Jesus is going to depart and return to install his kingdom, then obviously these servants would appear to be disciples. And I don't ever want to be disingenuous. Like this question doesn't have a clear answer, but is the third guy saved or not? Are the first two clearly saved and they get these rewards and the last one is saved but will get no rewards in heaven? Is that what this is sort of alluding to? I do believe that there will be a judgment for believers whereby we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. 
is this alluding to that? And like the third guy would be ushered into heaven and saved, but just get no rewards. Whereas the first two would receive rewards for their faithfulness. I'm not entirely sure. What I do know is that we can say with absolute certainty that everyone who saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus is ushered into his presence, regardless of whether or not we receive rewards, our joy will be full and complete because we will be reunited in perfect communion, unhindered by sin with God. And we're told that whatever rewards we receive, whatever crowns we receive, we're just gonna cast back down at the feet of the lamb anyway. And so no one is going to get to heaven, see the rewards that they get and be somehow disappointed for all of eternity. That's not the picture the Bible paints. But is that what's going on here? Or is there something else at play in this situation? The language does say the third individual is evil or wicked. What are we supposed to do with that? Is that even the focus? Like, is that even a question we're supposed to ask from the parable? I don't know. I don't have great answers. And when we get to heaven, because this was a story, that third guy is not a real person. So we can't even sit down and ask him like, hey, how'd this shake out? There is another group of people in the parable. And that leads to the third concrete thing we can take away. The king, lowercase k, because we're still in the parable, is aware of those opposed to him. There is a group of people in the parable who went after the nobleman to try to say, we don't want this person to rule over us. And at the very end, after he's dealt with the three servants, the king says, bring those who opposed me into my presence and slaughter them. And that is strong language. The king in the parable is aware that there was this group of people who were opposed to his kingdom, who were opposed to him ruling and reigning. And when the parable ends, we get strong language that to our modern sensibilities kind of makes us recoil a little bit, almost in disgust. But to Jesus's listeners would have felt like, uh, yeah, that's about right. Like that's what a king does to those who are opposed to him. In fact, that's what Archelaus did to the 50 Jewish leaders who opposed his rule. He came back and had him killed. So we see that strong language and we kind of recoil like, well, what is this saying about God? Jesus's listeners would have heard that strong language and thought that's what a king does. And if the parable existed in a vacuum, it would end on an incredibly discordant note. Like you went to a symphony and you listened to this beautiful music for a couple of hours that evening. And as it reached its peak at the very last movement of the very last song, they just totally botched the last chord. And you walked out like, what in the world? Just like, it was gross. What just happened there? If this existed in a vacuum, that's how that would feel at the end. What's going on here? But it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the context of Jesus' whole ministry. It exists in the context of the fullness of scripture. And it exists in the context of all of human history and what God is doing in his redemptive story. Right near the apex, Jesus going into Jerusalem at the Passover to be killed. How does that clarify this for us? I think we can take away a few concretes about how the cross clarifies this parable. And the first one is this. What's going to happen in Jerusalem is that the king, capital K, is slaughtered by and for his enemies. 
that's what Jesus is going to do. And enemies sounds strong, but Romans 5 tells us, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Like our sin makes us enemies of God. And so while the crowd says, oh yeah, slaughter my opponents in your, my presence. Yeah, that seems like what a king would do. Jesus is gonna flip that on its head. And Jesus is the king of kings. is gonna go into Jerusalem and be slaughtered by his enemies for his enemies. And while he's on the cross, he's going to cry out, Father, forgive them. Like the literal people who nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them. And so the cross clarifies the ending of this parable a little bit. Not to say that, everyone is going to be saved because that's not true. But to say that the nature of Jesus as king is not that he's this harsh exacting man like the third person in the parable thinks, but instead that he is a sacrificing, substituting, saving king. And what would have been expected by the people of that time gets flipped upside down by the kingdom of God. The king gets slaughtered in the presence of his enemies that he might draw those people to himself. John Stott says, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And the good news of the gospel is that it is the grace of God that has taken us who are enemies and made us friends of God. It is the grace of God that has taken us who were a people opposed to God's rule and reign in our sin and brought us into his kingdom as his people. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, Jesus is still aware. The king is still aware of those who are opposed to him. And there will be judgment. Leon Morris says, Jesus is the perfect king and nothing can interfere with his kingship, but we should not miss the point that some will rebel against all that he stands for. All who come to Christ were enemies who have been brought near by his grace. All who come to him do so, bringing nothing of our own to the table. All who come to him do so because the king was willing to be slaughtered in our place. How else does the cross clarify this for us? Well, the cross reminds us that the king, capital K, is disproportionately generous to his people. If we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, what does scripture tell us our reality is? It tells us that we are now hidden in Christ, that we are robed with the righteousness of Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that Christ is present with us, and that all the rewards that should have been the sons become ours. Disproportionate generosity. Look, in your moment of judgment, I don't know what, in my moment of judgment, I don't know what it is that I'm going to step up there before Jesus and think that I'm about to hold up like one of these servants to say, I made 10 times profit on what you gave me. But whatever it is that I try to lift up in that moment, it's going to fall woefully short. And he's going to be disproportionately generous. And one of the things that can happen in this parable, if we don't keep the context in mind, is that we can turn it into a works salvation sort of thing. Well, if I'm faithful enough, then when the king returns, I'll be able to hold out my 10 minas and be saved. When we keep the context right, we understand that there's something in this about a king and a kingdom and that that informs our stewardship. That we don't, faithfully live for Jesus in order to be saved. We faithfully live for Jesus because the king was slaughtered for us and he's coming back. 
And when he comes back as an act of worship, we wanna be able to offer him whatever it is that we give, not as an act of salvation. We want to try to offer him enough to save ourselves. That's why the context is so important. He's disproportionately generous. Literally every single thing that Christ's righteousness earned him will become yours. Disproportionate generosity to who? His literal enemies. His literal enemies who in their sin deserve his judgment, but instead who by his grace have been made his people. And then third, the cross clarifies one more thing, and that's that though the capital K king has departed, his people are not alone. The spirit of the king is among his people advancing the kingdom. Shortly after his death and resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven. And he actually tells the disciples in John chapter 15 that it is for their benefit that he depart for a time. Why? Well, he says, if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. While Jesus was on the earth, the presence of the king was rooted to one place. Since he has departed, his presence now fills all those who are his. And it is the spirit of the king, convicting, changing, restoring, comforting, healing, guiding, empowering, leading, speaking to, and advancing through all of the king's people. And that is good news. The cross and the events in Jerusalem remind us that although Jesus was killed, resurrected, and ascended, he has sent his spirit. And he rules as the king of an advancing kingdom that is advancing in and through his people thanks to the presence of the king's spirit. And he will do so until the king returns to fully consummate his kingdom. Jesus is the returning king of an advancing kingdom. Now I think we can try to apply this. Because the return of Jesus is not something that we hide behind while we scoff at the world and shake our head at the reality of sin and brokenness and just sort of wish and long that everything were different. Legan Duncan says this, that everywhere the Bible teaches us about the end, there's something in here about the end, like the king is coming back. It is concerned not to produce in us a preoccupation with speculation about, thoughts of escaping to, uh, or speculation about, or thoughts of escaping to the future, but instead to help us live today. There's something about stewardship in this. Something about stewardship in light of the capital K king and his good rule and his good reign. And the statement about stewardship is that as an act of worship to the king who has saved us, we live faithfully. The return of the king is motivation for the king's people. Bob is coming. And that's not something that's intended to strike fear in us that now if we just do enough, when Bob shows up, we won't get fired. If we as followers of Jesus, like Jesus is coming back, we just need to do enough and then when he comes, maybe we'll be saved. No, he has flipped that upside down. I have saved you. And we steward as an act of worship. We steward as an act of adoration, as an act of submission. Sisters and brothers, Jesus is coming back. And yes, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. That's 2 Corinthians 4. We think about things that are above in the heavens where Christ is seated. That's Colossians chapter three. But both of those are not means of escapism. 
They reinforce the motivation that we ought to know that the brokenness of this world is just that. It is broken and it's not supposed to be that way. We understand that the king is working through his people to restore brokenness. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation and no one else is going to fill that role. We are the people, the people of the kingdom. We shouldn't be looking around, hoping for someone else or looking beyond this world, trying to mentally escape to something different. God is sovereign and providential. And brother or sister, you were born at this time, brought to this place, saved by his grace, empowered by his spirit, gifted according to his will, that you might be an ambassador to the king right here, right now, until either he returns or you're taken to be with him. That is motivation for the king's people. It would be as if someone answered that phone there at Clayview, got off, scurried out onto the deck, yelled, Bob is coming, and everyone rejoiced. That would be the difference. And to borrow from the words of John Wesley as he was dying, best of all, God is with us. The presence of the Spirit is power for the king's people. We don't just have to do this alone. If we did have to do it alone, we'd be doomed to failure. We'd look around at the world and we'd be hopelessly overwhelmed by all the brokenness and ugliness and darkness that we see. But instead, he has sent his Spirit as the power that moves his people forward faithfully. He has sent his Spirit as the means by which the king advances his kingdom in the world today. Just flip forward a few pages in your Bible and read the book of Acts. Powerful pictures of the Holy Spirit restoring what is broken as it moves through the king's people. And number three, this broken world is the playing field for the king's people. Not somewhere else. We don't look around and think to ourselves, well, if this place were less broken, then I would get involved. If this place would clean itself up a little bit, then I'll start to engage. No, this is it. All of the brokenness, all of the darkness, all of the ugliness, all of the pain, all of the injustice, this is the playing field whereby the spirit of the king is moving through the king's people in order to restore what is broken and advance his kingdom. And so we can engage in this broken world with the mercy of the king, with the mission of the king, with the good news of the king, with the power of the king's spirit, with the beauty of the good rule and reign of the king restoring brokenness in all the ways that it manifests itself. And so whatever sector of life you find yourself in, lawyer, teacher, banker, construction worker, mechanic, maybe you're in ministry in some form or some fashion, maybe you're a counselor or a doctor or a nurse, you're an ambassador of the king right there, right now. His spirit empowering you, motivating you to live faithful until the king returns. We can do these things because the king has sent his spirit into his people. We should want to do these things as an act of worship because Jesus is the king of an advancing kingdom and one day he's coming back. And as an act of worship between now and then, we humbly submit ourselves to him and we steward our lives, not in order to be saved, but because the king was slaughtered for his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and then we'll close in worship. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you that we don't have to try to do enough, live faithfully enough, get enough return on the gifts and the blessings that you've given us in order to be saved. God, but thank you that in sending your son, while we were still your enemies, he was slaughtered by us and for us that we might be saved by your grace through faith in him. God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, that your spirit would move powerfully inside of us, creating in us a longing to faithfully live in light of the king's return, to steward what you've given us as an act of worship and adoration. God, would you do that in and among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can stand up, let's sing together. You might kind of be thinking to yourself, uh, Tim, it's a, it's a big leap from uh, bring my enemies here and slaughter them in my presence to Jesus was slaughtered by his enemies and for his enemies. There's one other thing that would have been running in the background of the minds of these people surrounding Jesus as they're getting ready to enter Jerusalem. Remember, they're headed there for the Passover. And I'm gonna give you like a little homework. If you just get some time later this afternoon or maybe tomorrow, uh, go back and read Leviticus 4, 5, and 6. It's not the most stimulating reading you've ever done. But it gives you what these sacrifices for sin looked like when you went to the temple, whether it was intentional sin, unintentional sin, the sin of a leader, the sin of a priest, the sin of an individual. You took an animal, a spotless lamb or a bull, you went into the temple and the language in Leviticus 4, 5, and 6 is slaughter it in the presence of the Lord and in this way, the priest will make atonement for the people and their sin will be forgiven. Okay? What's the language at the end of the parable? Bring them into my presence and slaughter them. What happens in Jerusalem? Jesus is taken to the cross, slaughtered in the presence of the Lord. He makes atonement for his people and their sin is forgiven. And that's why the book of Hebrews says this. By this, that's the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Slaughtered by his enemies for his enemies that his people might be atoned and forgiven. That's the beauty of the gospel, amen? That's why we would sing something like he is hope for the hopeless. He is, he is. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice. We were the ones who sinned against him, his enemies that he died to save. And that is to his glory and in praise of his goodness. Amen? Amen. Thanks for being here with us this morning. We love you. Have a great week. We'll see you again soon.